My guest today is a great singer-songwriter who has a brand new solo album coming out called Lost in the Ghost Light. comes out February 17th. Pleased to welcome back Tim Bonus. Hello there. Hello. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing, man? I'm all right, I think. So, right, other, than, other than a headache, I'm in a darkened room with a headache. <laughs> Hopefully you had a, a good uh, you know, Christmas uh, break or a Happy New Year's and all that. Yeah, it's fine, I think. What about, what about you? Very, very quiet, very sort of um, family oriented. But, you know, um, we, we stayed in the one room for probably two weeks, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Got a little time away from the computer, which is always good. Well, cool, man. Always good to speak with you. Uh, I have to say, personally, I love the new album. Man, I, I think each album has gotten better and better and better and this one is uh is just really fantastic all the all the way through which is awesome thank you well i think it's one of the things i was quite pleased with i think that it's a very solid album statement from the beginning to the end there's something about it where it it doesn't doesn't seem to flag for me and 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 i'm really pleased with the two other albums i did for inside out but it's quite strange listening to them in retrospect the arc of this album seems better and seems more substantial and 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 that isn't to diminish the other albums because i still think it's got some of my strongest material and i think you know in some ways from from a solo work point of view it feels um like a bit of a renaissance in that i believe the solo work is at least competing with no man work which which i think previously quite a lot of my um side projects um and there are exceptions to it but i think previously most of them probably were in the shadow of of no man's work and 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 i'd like to think that these have come out of the shadow of, of no man's work well do you think that uh when doing the solo albums that you were in some cases maybe feeling your way around that environment and now you've become more comfortable with that? Or is there something to that? It's possibly true. I mean, I think I was initially quite reluctant. I think with, with the first album, as I may have said at the time, it was um, my idea of what a No Man album should be because I'd, I'd sort of written the demos with No Man in mind. And because Stephen Wilson didn't have the time to work on this he said well, look i'll mix it but i think you should release it as your your solo album and the interesting thing is that it, it was much more my solo album than my hotel year had been because I, I made a solo album in 2004 and it was a very um episodic bitty album because what it was was i was working on three or four projects that weren't quite coming to fruition they were all sort of interesting but they weren't working. And so I drew the best songs from each of the four projects. And, and I think what you got was 11 songs with really sort of three or four different directions that didn't gel as well as they should. And, and Abandoned Dance or Dreams I'd written very much as an album, but an album for No Man. And and I think that I, in the end, the album was my idea of what a No Man album could be. And then with Stupid Things That Mean the World, um, it was probably my idea of where a Tim Bonus solo album should go after Abandoned Dance or Dreams. It's taking the elements that I thought were me. And and this is distinct from that in a way that um, musically um, it, it's followed a slightly different path. And that path has been dictated by the story or the concepts of the album. And, and perhaps you're right, because this time I just kind of followed the idea through obsessively and didn't think about necessarily what it represented right so i always wonder about the ideas uh where an artist's head is for a concept album one are you a fan of those you know the sort of the history of the concept album and you felt like 
you had one in you at some point that you wanted to always do, or you just got inspired by this story and it just, you know, became what it became? I, I think it's a combination of both. I, I've always loved um, concept albums and I, I've always loved albums with a great deal of um, detail, thought, obsessiveness. And, and particularly for me, I, I, I was like Pete Townsend's conceptual work and I really like the way in which he talked about um being a musician himself and also people's reactions to him being a musician and of course he had a project called Lifehouse in the early 1970s which he never fully realized and that's one of the great concept albums that got away and um and there's been some inspiration in that respect that I've always liked um albums such as Quadrophenia Psychedelic by Pete Townsend and or, or The Who and um some of Roger Waters' uh, work, you know, The Wall, I think, was an album that when I was a teenager, um, I absolutely adored. And so as a, as a format, it's something that's always interested me. But I've always kind of gone before for sort of themed albums. So with some of the No Man albums, like Together with Strange or Schoolyard Ghosts, or with Abandoned Dance or Dreams and Stupid Things That Mean the World, they were always albums that had an overriding mood rather than anything else. So... They were concept albums in as much as something like Dark Side of the Moon is a concept album because that basically is several separate songs with an overall theme, perhaps, of <clears throat> the pressures of the modern world. And I suppose that right. with Together with Stranger, that really was a kind of a breakup album. Um, Abandoned Dance or Dreams, I just kind of had an overriding idea of faded grandeur and perhaps people who'd passed through um, these buildings that had once had social significance so that was kind of it was it was themed rather than story um but yeah it's a long-winded way of saying that i guess i've always wanted to make um a story album but what i didn't want was something that was um overly complex overly obscure because as much as i love the concept album um it certainly has um produced quite a lot of um works that are um willfully difficult i'd say right. um yeah and as much as I, I as i quite enjoy going through the sleeve notes of some of these albums it wasn't something i particularly wanted to make but yes i've always wanted to make a sort of um a story album and and, and weirdly you know once you have that story and that set of ideas um rather than being restricting it's actually quite liberating and you find that you're more inventively applying yourself to what you can do with that story um and so yeah it be, it, once you have that it becomes quite all-consuming and i guess that for me it was a a point of obsession because the subjects it deals with um a career in music and, and, and particularly a career in music during a particular time of music and um and music obsession are, are ones that interest me and um I said to somebody earlier today that the interviews have focused my thinking somewhat in that right. on one level, I thought, actually, this is almost like a wildlife documentary on an endangered species. And on another level, it's a bit like it's it's the first time I've, I've done a story album, but also it's a bit like because I don't feel I've lost my identity on this album. It still feels very much me in terms of the lyrics and the emotion and, and perhaps the intensity. And um it almost feels as if this is the first time I've made a period drama. You know, it's it's a bit like I've made 
my version of Downton Abbey or the Queen. You know, um, it may be a completely different era and a completely different subject, but in some ways approaching it, it was almost like doing a period drama. It was, um, it was my interpretation of events from a certain time. And, um, and that, of course, opens up possibilities as to whether I do, you know, um, other period dramas, you know. Right, <laughs> sure. The, the, the sequel, the prequel, you know, all that kind of stuff. Absolutely. Next one is going to be the disco ball, you know. Right. Uh, well, one thing that is, is cool in the, in the album, Lost in the Ghost Light, which comes out February 17th, uh, is also the artwork and the whole thing. So the idea of the concept allows you to play with everything. And that's one thing that I remember in speaking with Stephen Wilson is that, that he enjoys of the concept album is you get to immerse yourself in everything from the, the liner notes to the cover to the to the tour visuals. You know, everything becomes all about that. It makes it like sort of like a movie, like an experience. So how much of the uh, the, the artwork and the, and the planning of that did you get involved with and, and uh, you know, sort of get to play with yeah well I, I mean i quite enjoy that as well i mean certainly on on previous albums there have always been visual links and especially when i've worked with jared gosling who did the sleeve artwork for lost in the ghost light we've always had quite detailed sleeves and sleeves that relate to the characters that the album songs are about and this time it's fair to say that we went to town on it this was um, perhaps the most excessively detailed sleeve and backstory i've ever had or done and i wrote a full biography of the band and the artist that the um album was about i wrote a full discography with album titles tracks um career direction and i gave this to um jared and we also talked about his habits his personality and he greatly enjoyed this It's, it's always nice working with Jared because he's an enthusiastic person to deal with and he also has some wonderful ideas so yeah I, I provided him with an incredibly detailed biography um character breakdown and discography and he then took that and played with it and went further than even I'd suggested and then of course I gave him feedback on what he'd done and one of the great things is that I had the career discography from sort of 1967 to 2017 and Every album is, is detailed, and, and he does covers for these albums. So although it's, although it's one album sleeve, I've actually got about 14 album sleeves in there. Yeah, that's and really he, cool. You know, and he brilliantly evokes the era, you know, from the excitement and exploration of the 60s and 70s to the band becoming maybe slightly tired in the 80s and some fairly hideous, very typically 80s graphics. And his 2017 sleeve is a very fine carl glover imitation you know it almost could be the next no man album on k-scope you know it's um very odd um but but you know brilliantly detailed and and yeah we 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 put a lot of thought in in what went into it you know from any details from the from the name of the wine to the moisturizer he has and so on um and yeah it, it was fantastic to get immersed in that because of course the music is paramount the music's important and i completely threw myself into the music and the sleeve i guess that came about after the album had been completed and that became um a separate uh, obsession really and uh and yeah you know very enjoyable and as detailed as you'd think <laughs> yeah um the so the name of the band that it's sort of about is is moonshot manchild right that is, am i getting that right the band is called moonshot and and then it was selected very deliberately um because I sort of, 
you know, I've always had an obsession with music of the late 60s, early 70s anyway, because I think it was one of the great periods of musical innovation. And that could be in rock, in jazz, and it could also be in film. You know, if you think of Stanley Kubrick's 2001. Um, and I was thinking that in some ways, maybe that was tied in with the fact that at the time man was looking outside itself. It was sending the first explorers into space. It was... Um, creating the first rocket that goes to the moon and we have the, the moon landings and and i kind of wondered if that psychologically affect the world of the arts as well that you got some amazingly imaginative um mind expanding cinema you know such as stanley kubrick's 2001 um and then you also had in music various revolutions from the progressive rock movement to the jazz rock movement onwards where music seemed to be sort of um aiming for the stratosphere it didn't seem to have any bounds in terms of its invention and of course there have been lots of musical movements since that have been inventive um but they've been much more earthbound if you think of punk you think of post-punk or you think of acid house there's something much more earthbound about that music compared to the 60s and 70s and so yeah. i title i title the band moonshot because on one level it's the era of the moonshot the rocket to the moon and on another level moonshot's got um a meaning which is it's your big idea you know the moonshot is the big idea you've got you know whether that's creating the internet or something so yeah i kind of tied it in with with the period I like that song as well, the the uh, the second track on the album, Moonshot Manchild, which is why I, I referenced that. That that's probably my favorite track on the album, but it it seems sort of like a a, a central song to the story. Where where so talk about the timeline of the the story and how the album kind of starts and goes through that and and um and the timeline of of the songs. Well, I I sort of see it as being set now so so effectively it's a 2017 concert and let's say you know he's playing the wakefield auditorium to 350 hardcore fans who are very much the same age as him and i visualize this character as being sort of 15 to 20 years older than than i was it was a particular generation of musician who had come through the revolutionary 60s and 70s had a level of success um globally um, but now was kind of playing out his career to to an aging audience and, and from having been culturally significant was perhaps now um, just providing golden oldies comfort food for his own generation. So it was about his backstage thought processes. So I sort of imagined him backstage 2017 and then the lyrics themselves deal with different phases so Worlds of Yesterday starts with almost his realisation of where he is in the present day, that he's perhaps become a bit of a tired parody of himself. Um, but then you have songs like um, You'll Be the Silence, and that is, is very specifically um, partly based on conversations I've had with musicians of that era and, and, and how it affected them, but it's partly about how certain progressive and classic rock musicians felt in the time of punk and new wave that they felt irrelevant passed over by the press um and it very much affected their confidence and so that song is almost about the music perhaps becoming slightly more complacent because of its level of success but also um the artist being deeply hurt by a rejection um, of what it sees of, of of a younger audience of the music press and another song that sort of deals with that is kill the pain that's killing you which 
I kind of see as about the person's the breakdown of his relationship you know this constant touring this rock life is tearing apart the marriage and the child his wife is having an affair and the song effectively is about him in a sense getting drunk to self-piteously you know drown his sorrows but it's also about the fact that the modern world is changing and he's not keeping up with it so a few of the songs are sort of set in a in a late 1970s early 1980s point where the musician is falling apart both in terms of personal life and creative life and um, and of course you know that wasn't the case for everybody because there were quite a few musicians from that age, that era who completely transcended it you know robert fripp um peter gabriel peter hamill all of them continued to be very creative and very relevant and bands like pink floyd just continued to make extremely grand and successful statements that were every bit as brilliant as they had been but there were a lot of folk rock jazz rock prog rock bands that were killed in the late 1970s a bit like jazz musicians who were kind of killed by the emergence of the beatles right that you know from selling out clubs in new york chicago wherever suddenly everybody wants pop everybody wants rock and and there are you know all sorts of times in music but i was specifically uh, thinking of that time um another timeline one would be the very last track distant summers where i kind of see it that the characters got to this stage where they're questioning themselves and their value and they get right back to the core of what it was that they're doing that so Distant Summers is almost about this 1967 realisation of how much music means to them, what music can do. And it's in a way quite an optimistic end to the album because it's the character kind of reconnecting with their reason for making music. And that's one of the reasons why I deliberately got Ian Anderson on that track, because, you know, when I was uh, a, an early teenager, Jethro Tull were a huge influence. And I think, you know, he's a great all-round talent, brilliant lyricist, brilliant songwriter, brilliant player. And so for me, having somebody who was a formative influence for me, you know, one of the reasons I would have wanted to make music, being on the track that's about the character, one of the reasons why he wants to make music was um, was intentional. And it was, um, you know, quite a moving moment in its own way. Speaking of the, the musicians on the album, along with Ian Anderson, you have a really impressive list of people uh, on the album, Colin Edwin and, and Bruce Sword, and uh, of course Stephen is uh, mixing and mastering it. So talk about mm-hmm. how you pulled all that impressive list together. I mean, is it you guys meet at a bar and talk about who can join, or you pick up the, <laughs> you know pick up the phone, or how's it happen? Yeah, we have we have a dream list. Now, well, well, some of it is is part of my live band. So Colin Edwin, Stephen Bennett, and Andy Booker have been in my live band for quite a few years, and I, I've been lucky to work with them because you know they're all great players and and very versatile um and you know colin i think is is highly underrated really because you know on the album you'll hear him do bass harmonic solos you'll hear fretless bass you'll hear double bass um and then you'll hear straightforward rock bass as well you know he's a very versatile player and very easy to work with so three of the players were were part of my regular band but I, i made a few changes that my regular guitarist, Michael Bearpark, who, you know, I love as a player and as a person, his style's very abstract and I wanted something different. So I went for Bruce Sword because he played on a couple of tracks on my last album, Guitar. And what I like about his style is he's very direct and he's very melodic. And I think that might be because he's a songwriter himself. So he does what's right for the piece, 
Whereas Michael's quite an innovative player and almost plays against the piece, and that can work superbly in certain contexts. I very much wanted somebody who would play with the material. So mm. Bruce was brought in for that reason. And, you know, I think did did a splendid job of being just a solo guitarist, you know. Um, we also had um, Hux Nettemarm from Patus, who are uh, an inside-out band you might know. And um, it was interesting, contrasting, because he plays on half the album and Andrew Booker plays on half the album. And, and Andy is a very sort of jittery, forward-thinking drummer and he was perfect for pieces like kill the pain that's killing you and you wanted to be seen and hux has got an incredibly relaxed organic sound and um he was perfect for pieces like you'll be the silence and moonshot manchild so you know different players were chosen for their different strengths um kit watkins came about because um We've been in contact over the internet for for years, and and actually the the version of Camel that Kit was in is one of the first ever gigs I went to um, in the early nineteen eighties. I saw him play, and um, oddly, you know, he's followed my music, I followed his, and it just seemed the right time to get him involved. And he uh, produced a couple of wonderful flute performances on the album. Um, Andrew Keeling is a, is a classical composer who's worked with me, Robert Fripp, but, and also a lot of um, classical musicians. And he's somebody who's arranged strings on the last two albums. And um, he's always a really nice wild card because you give him an idea of what you want and he'll sort of do it. And then he'll do something on top of that, which is always interesting. So I, I like getting him involved. And this time as well, he played a lot of flute because one of the instruments that's very featured on the album is flute. It's on six of the eight tracks. And um, he, he's another fantastic flautist and um so yeah it was a combination of sort of thinking right who's right for the piece and um you know what do i want and, and obviously with the mixing and mastering you know Stephen um is one of the best mixes in the world so you know I, i'm lucky that obviously i've been in a band with him for quite some time so i can draw on his expertise and um yeah it was great to get him involved again as well is it sort of an easy uh you know like minds thinking alike you know he understands he he can listen to the music and without having to really talk to you he he knows what to do with it because you guys have sort of a uh, almost a similar style similar vibe been in bands together all of that Uh, absolutely i mean no disrespect to to bruce because you know bruce did a great job mixing stupid things that mean the world and i think it's as good as abandoned dancehall dreams in terms of sound but it took him quite a long time to get into the groove of that sound whereas with stephen it was instant you know and, and it was with abandoned dancehall dreams and of course stephen's progressed since then as well so but yeah he knows what i want and what i like i give him certain instructions and he does it perfectly almost immediately you know whereas you know with bruce he did it brilliantly but it took quite a long time but that's and that's no fault of his whatsoever because i think you're right it's because i know um stephen intimately and he knows what i like and um so yeah it was almost like um i got what i wanted with with almost a minimum of fuss and um and it makes the process a lot easier in some ways because you you know you know you're in safe hands really so now that you have this album out, where does your head sort of go after putting so much effort into an album? Now it, it's it's about to come out, and uh, you might have a few singles and some different things happening. And then, you know, where do you go? Uh, do you do you take a few months off? Do you start writing the new one right away? What happens? Well, I sort of I usually um, 
immerse myself in something else almost straight away or at the time of um, the album's completion, just so I don't suffer from, as we call it, post-album depression. You know? um, um, and it's, and, and interestingly, this time, you know, I, I finished an album, I've nearly finished an album off with um, with Peter Chilvers, which is maybe more typical of what I do in, in that it's a singer-songwriter with electronics. Um but I think is is very much the best work we've done. And, and and another project I've done almost again, if you like, a period drama was um, one of the first bands I was ever in, which is a, my pre No Man band called Plenty. We've re-recorded all of the songs that we wrote in the nineteen eighties, and of course the singing is very different. And I've had to rewrite half of the lyrics because I wasn't so sure about what I was on about then. You know, right. it's like. Uh, um, so I've, I've done this, but interestingly enough, um, finishing Lost in the Ghost Light, it, it felt very satisfying. And so um, I haven't felt as much of a sort of dramatic impetus to to progress with other projects, really. Yeah, so at the moment, I've, I say I've got these two albums um, that are in the process of being finished and hopefully will be released sometime in 2017. But it almost feels like I'm waiting for that next um big project or big idea that next moonshot if you will um and of course you know ever since the album was completed in um you know late autumn or or the fall as you have it um last year a lot of work has been done either on the cover or obviously recently with promotion so it's kind of become quite um an all-encompassing thing and and it and it may well also become a live thing i mean i did a couple of gigs in November uh, co-headlines with a band called I Am The Morning and uh, they went well and you know we're kind of wondering whether, whether we should do that again um, again as a sort of co-headline because it was it was it was a nice mixture of bands in that our music's very different but there's a kind of feel that suits both bands and uh, and was quite complimentary yeah and they're start, starting to get a lot of publicity too uh, of late for their last album so that's a nice um a uh, nice match. Always great to talk to you, man. Like I said, the album is awesome. I think that uh, I think people are going to love it, and the music just keeps getting better. So I wish uh, you all the best well, with it. Yeah, thank you. Uh, too bad you're not going on one of these cruises. We got to get you on one of these cruises uh, next I'd time. I'd love to do it. Yeah, I mean, you know, <laughs> got to get someone to, <laughs> right. to fight my corner for it. I think. Yeah, but, exactly. Um, and right. and, yeah, and someday it'd be nice to go to Florida as well. Obviously. So. Yeah. Yeah. Good weather. Um, yeah. All right, man. I'll be in touch. Thank you. Yeah, nice speaking. See you. Too, man. Bye. Thanks to Tim for the interview. We're going to close with a track off of Lost in the Ghost Light. This is You Wanted to Be Seen. For upcoming news and interviews, please check theparkreport.com. Follow us on Facebook, at The Park Report on Twitter, and download the podcast on iTunes. Thanks.